Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the earthquake and the tsunami in the Pacific. Can international interventions stop Colonel Gaddafi? Renewed fears of sovereign defaults in the Eurozone. And the Dalai Lama steps down from politics. We're recording this on Friday morning, just a couple of hours after the news from Japan of the tsunami and the earthquake. Mio Diki, one of our correspondents there, gave us this report from Tokyo. Even in Tokyo, far from the epicentre, this was the most dramatic earthquake I have felt in 20 years, much of it spent in some of Asia's most active seismic zones. The Financial Times office on the 21st floor of a central Tokyo office block swayed and shuddered for what seemed an age. Some ceiling tiles fell and a section of pipe now hangs dangling over my desk. Within minutes, the nearby parks and streets were full of office workers evacuated from their buildings. Starbucks coffee shop staff handed out free coffee and there was an atmosphere of mingled fear and relief. Everywhere people were struggling to get a mobile phone signal to check on their loved ones. Queues formed outside public telephones and a Shinkansen bullet train ground to an unscheduled halt on a bridge near Tokyo Station. Crowds clustered around TV sets in suddenly silent railway stations and department stores and soon it was clear that people further north of the capital were having it much worse. Terrifying footage on state TV of a burning oil refinery. News helicopters witnessed tsunamis washing fields of debris, including whole houses and greenhouses far across inland fields. It was clear that this is going to be the worst disaster to have hit Japan in many years. That was Miodiki in Tokyo. Now to Libya. Calls are growing for international intervention in Libya, with debate going on at NATO, the UN and inside the European Union. But so far, no action. Joining me in the studio to discuss the situation is James Blitz, our diplomatic correspondent. James, the momentum on the ground seems to be moving quite fast now towards Colonel Gaddafi, but the international community is wringing its hands but seems fairly paralysed. Why is it so difficult to, to decide what to do? Well, that's certainly right, because uh, Gaddafi is clearly has got a lot of momentum behind him now. He's taken Zawiya in the west. He seems to be taking Ras Lanouf, the important oil terminal, and he's moving towards Benghazi. At the same time, the international community is divided and paralysed. On the one hand, you've got France, which is very much out there uh, saying that it wants to look at some kind of military action. It's recognised the rebels in Benghazi as uh, an, an, an effectively an independent government, if you like. It's also talking to, the, to its international partners about targeted airstrikes against Gaddafi's uh, military capability to try and push him back. The British are also in a kind of second league just behind him, saying they do want to see some kind of action, largely focused on a no-fly zone. But the US is really well out of that kind of talk. It, it, it doesn't seem to want to have any direct um, role at all. That's very much, I think, the view in the Pentagon. Bob Gates, the Defence Secretary, saying we'll have contingency for a fly, no-fly zone and no, no more than that. And I think because of that division, I just don't think there is enough international momentum happening at the UN and elsewhere. 
And is American reluctance because they're worried about the military implications or because they can't see that they can get a UN resolution and after Iraq they're very reluctant to move without that? Or is it a combination of the two? I think it's a variety of factors. I mean, you have certainly got a number of strong voices in the US saying there should be military action. That's very much on Capitol Hill. It's it's, uh, John McCain and his colleagues who are talking about that. But within the administration, I just think there is, number one, a deep reluctance to get involved in a new conflict in the Middle East while there is such a focus on Afghanistan. That's the first point. I think the second is the the shades of Iraq are still hanging over the administration. They don't want to get involved in a war in the Middle East, which will go on and on. And I think they also realize that you've actually got here some bottom-up revolutions that are happening and there are no U.S. flags being burned and you don't want to turn that round on a wider scale. By, by making this a Western-led thing rather than an indigenous uh, exactly, revolt. Exactly, exactly. But, but uh, the French, however, seem, as you say, to be the most activist or uh, the most willing to contemplate military action even without a UN mandate. Why is President Sarkozy uh, getting so vehement about this? I think there are a number of things driving the French position. I think the first is that they've started off the entire Middle East crisis on a very bad note. They completely misread Tunisia. They seem to be allied with Ben Ali. They lost their foreign minister, Michel Alliot-Marie, in that whole crisis because she had been too close to Ben Ali. And so that was a very bad start for Sarkozy. I think the second reason is there is, as you know, a very strong humanitarian instinct in French foreign policy, which will not accept the idea of large numbers of people being killed in this kind of uprising against a dictator. You've got you've got people like Bernard Kushner, the former foreign minister, actually in Benghazi, very high profile French figures. I think there's also, though, with the French, a fair bit of posturing here. At the end of the day, they are looking at this and they they can see that this is probably going to end with the return of Gaddafi and the rebels being defeated. And I think Sarkozy wants to put himself in a position where he's saying, look, I really did my level best. I recognize these people. I talked about military strikes. I just didn't get enough support elsewhere. So I think he's posturing and thinking about that kind of outcome. Rather depressing uh, conclusion, James. Thank you very much indeed. Let's move to Europe now, where there's a growing fear that the European sovereign debt crisis is boiling up once again. Richard Milne of the FT joins me here in the studio. Richard, is is the European debt crisis reaching a kind of new crisis point, do you think? Yes, well, I think it's been somewhat in hibernation. The markets have been distracted by other things. And this week you've seen uh, Moody's downgrade both Greece and Spain and suddenly it's uh, it's livened up again. And, of course, we've got the two crucial EU summits coming up and the markets are not expecting too much there either. So how much longer do you think before we get into a new scenario of, say, a bailout for Portugal or a run on Spain? What, what's how, how many weeks have we got? Well, I think the markets don't really care about Portugal, if I can put it like that. They, they've discounted for a long time. They think that Portugal will have to take a bailout. Spain is the pivotal country. And what's interesting there is in the last few months, actually, the risk of default as measured by these horrible CDS things has actually fallen and Spain has kind of broken away a bit. Now, if that carries on, um, you know, that's actually quite good news. And I think the market just thinks then it would be contained to these smaller countries. Of course, the problem this week was Moody's said that actually they thought that the Spanish rescue of the banks was going to cost considerably more. Mm. And how about uh, action within the European Union? I mean, the, the Europeans seemed a bit more relaxed with the suggestion that Spain was OK and that Portugal would be persuaded to take this bailout, even if they don't seem to particularly want it. Um, but now there's again a sense that the Europeans really haven't got their act together and they're squabbling too much. Is, is that fair? 
I think it's absolutely fair. that uh, I spoke to a strategist in January when things seemed to be going right, and he said, you know, the awful thing about this is if things go too right, the politicians will say we don't need to do anything. And I think a couple of days later, you had Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, said everything's going right in the markets, we don't need to do anything. And I think that's the danger. You know, Europe only reacts when there's a real crisis. At the moment, the market isn't pushing it that way. The borrowing costs for these countries are sort of edging up. But, um, uh, you know, maybe if the markets want to see decisive action, they need to give a, a bit of a jolt to the politicians. And is it the case that the what the markets want and what the politicians are concentrating on seem to be rather different things? So the market wants an expansion of the kind of stability fund in the sense that Europe's pockets are, are deep enough to deal with this, whereas the German politicians in particular, who are the as I understand it, the ones with the checkbooks, are focusing more on a kind of long-term structural economic reforms, competitiveness, that kind of thing? Well, I think the Germans want to see the rest of Europe look a lot like Germany, which, um, uh, I mean, having lived in Germany, I'm slightly dubious that the rest of Europe can do that. But uh, I think the the, the market, uh, in a, as a bond investor, your upside is you get your money back. Your downside is you lose your money in a default. So the market pushes incredibly hard when it sees a risk of default and that's what they're seeing at the moment with Greece with Portugal with Ireland and they're going to push very hard until they want Germany to say everything's all right we'll give you the money so it's a, it's a real tussle between taxpayers and bondholders going on and i think you'll see that all year probably not just in in europe but also uh, it, with the banks and everything else well last question i mean a lot of economists i speak to say well it's inevitable actually there will be a restructuring uh, that that ireland uh, greece certainly will restructure their debts do, do the bond markets have they factored that in well There are degrees of politeness in talking about this. At one extreme, you've got default, which is um, the sort of terrible word, what everybody wants to avoid. You know, the classic example would be... You're not getting your money back, basically. And would be Argentina, you know, Mm. riots on the street and uh, that kind of thing. I spoke to a very senior European policymaker this week, and he said, there's going to be no defaults. But then in the next breath, he said, well, well, we'll try and find something else that kind of, in a way is like a default, but this would be the voluntary restructuring of debt. These are terms like liability management, bond buybacks, in which bondholders eventually suffer some kind of loss, but they also get something in return, some kind of sweetening, or they get their bonds, they have to hold them for a longer period. Um, I said that was the last question, but I can't forbear from asking one further question. I mean, okay, if if, if most people seem to think that's where we're going, why don't they just do it now? Well, that would seem to be the, the, the obvious thing. I think there's a deep anathema in policymakers at, at having a, something akin to another Lehman. You know, they won't let Anglo-Irish Bank fail in Ireland, but tiny bank, but they're not sure what the impact would be. And I think in a single currency, the worry is just if one uh, country, even if it's Greece, that everybody expects to restructure, actually does it, you know, what is it a Pandora's box that you're opening? OK. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Our final topic today is Tibet. The Dalai Lama, the Tibetan spiritual leader, has said he wants to step down as political leader of Tibet's government in exile and to give way to a leader elected by the Tibetan people. Fiona Simon spoke to Jamil Andalini, one of the FT's correspondents in Beijing, and she asked him whether this will mean that the Dalai Lama is now departing from the international stage. I very much doubt it, seeing as he will remain the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, not just in exile, but also within Tibet. He remains the most important uh, spiritual religious figure for for the entire people. Why is it you think he decided to make this move now? 
Well, I think the most important reason is that for for the last 50 years, he's been the driving force that's kept the Tibetan um, independence or the Tibetan cause in the minds of everyone around the world. And because of that, no one else has really been able to emerge as a as a potential leader. Now, he's 76 years old, and he's not getting any younger, but there's still yet to be any sort of obvious successor to him. He and also most of the Tibetan government in exile have already said that the next Dalai Lama cannot be uh, reincarnated within Chinese-controlled Tibet. So for the exile movement and the Tibetan expatriates, they've already said that the reincarnation process of choosing his successor, the traditional process can't happen as it, as it might once have. So he, he really needs to step away from politics. He feels he needs to step away from politics and allow others to emerge to, to take more of a, of a leading role. Are there any suitable leaders in waiting? There are three candidates for the position of essentially prime minister for the Tibetan government in exile. And on March 20th, there'll be an election where one of those will be chosen. Now, it's very interesting. The Tibetan government in exile has had a pri- an elected, democratically elected uh, prime minister since 2001, but he is a, a monk, a religious figure. The three candidates for the election, all of them are lay people, none of them are monks. So it, no matter who gets chosen, the, it will not be a monk. For the first time in Tibet's history, there'll be a, a lay person who will be in charge of the, of the government in exile. Do any of these potential leaders have the kind of influence with people in Tibet that the Dalai Lama has had? No, they really don't, mainly because they're not religious figures. Partly what he's hoping to do is to is to allow them to take more of a political role. And he, he talked about various ways of choosing his successor that don't follow the traditional religious route of reincarnation. So he's talked about potentially appointing his successor while he's still alive. He's also talked about Tibetan spiritual leaders choosing the next Dalai Lama as the Pope is chosen through a, a kind of conclave, picking someone once the Dalai Lama's gone. So there's a various options on the table for him. And he's also even suggested there may not be a Dalai Lama. Is the spiritual role in some ways more important than the political one? Well, traditionally in Tibet, the, the two have been inseparable, really. What he's almost trying to do is do away with his own position. He's, he's trying to limit his own power. And so you have this paradox where the Chinese government is actually defending the traditional religious rights of the reincarnation process because they see that as a way for them to essentially um, appoint their own Dalai Lama. What do you think the impact is likely to be on the Tibetan struggle for independence? In the past, the Dalai Lama has tried to limit his own power, or he said he's tried to limit his own power, and he's suggested giving up his powers before, and he's had a hard time of it because the government in exile has generally voted to uh, not let him give up his powers. So we, we've got to see what happens. I mean, he's, he's trying to prepare them partly for you know to accept his his mortality and to try and think past you know his passing onto what comes next. What about the uh, the response of the Chinese government? I think in Beijing they realise that time is probably on their side. They've got their own succession plan already in train, and they're they're just sort of biding their time till he's till he's off the scene, and then they'll probably you know especially if China's geopolitical influence and economic clout continues to grow, they probably assume that a lot of the problem will die when when he does. Jamil Andalini in Beijing.
And that's it for this week. Thanks to James Blitz and Richard Milne in the studio, to Mio Dickey in Tokyo, and to Jamil Andalini in Beijing. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani and Robert Minto. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.